Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And the first thing I'd like to do today is to give my heartfelt thanks to first-time donor Wilma Van Tee, and also to David G. and Garrett W., who all sent in donations this week, and uh, David and Garrett uh, have also done so in the past as well. So, Wilma, David, and Garrett, uh, I hope you have as happy a Thanksgiving holiday as uh, mine will be in no small part, thanks to you and all of the other wonderful supporters of the salon. Now, before I get into today's show, I, I ought to mention that I just received a notice from Google, who uh, now owns FeedBurner, which is the source of the feed that some of our fellow saloners are using to subscribe to these podcasts. Now, they tell me that there should be no interruption in your service when they do a, a changeover that they're planning. But just in case they do slip up, uh, you can always download each program directly from our psychedelicsalon.org blog, or you can uh, use the alternative feed over at matrixmasters.com slash podcast slash psychedelicthinking.xml. And uh, the P and T are capitalized in psychedelic thinking. You'll figure it out. Now, uh, let's get to today's program, and uh, I think you're going to find it quite fascinating. Unless, of course, you are uh, completely locked into believing that uh, what you see is actually there. <laughs> yep, we're going to talk about a few different kinds of reality today. Our guest speaker is uh, another friend of mine, Rai Sententia. And uh, you've heard me mention her in previous podcasts when I spoke about the Center for Cognitive Liberty, which uh, she co-founded with her partner, one of our tribe's most preeminent lawyers, Richard Glenn Boyer. And you'll hear Rye say a few words about the center in her talk. You know, it's, it's always hard for me to know how to introduce people who are friends of mine like Rye, because instead of all her professional accomplishments, uh, my first thoughts are of her and Richard as parents of two great little kids. But in addition to raising a family, uh, here, here are uh, a few other aspects of Rye's life that I just now read about on uh, various websites. As a director of the CCLE, Puckish and brilliant rye sententia. <laughs> I like that, don't you? Puckish and brilliant. Fits her like a glove, I think. And it goes on. Rye sententia oversees projects that aim to focus public attention on cognitive technologies in relation to individual rights of mind, neuroethics, as well as drawing uh, attention to neuroethical concerns about trends in psychopharmacology and related cognitive neuroscience fields. In addition to her nonprofit work on the policy and ethics of freedom of thought in an age of neurotechnology, she currently teaches both for the UC Davis Technocultural Studies Program and the University Writing Program. Now, when I play this talk in a few seconds, you'll hear that every once in a while, Rye will uh, refer to one of the slides she was showing along with her talk. And I can remember some of them, and it's really too bad that this is only an audio podcast because they certainly were thought-provoking. But for the most part, I think you'll uh, be able to follow her talk with, without the uh, accompanying images. And now, Rai Sententia talking about reality syndromes and cyberpunk symptoms. Have you ever woken up and said to yourself, Oh my God! Everything I think I know is wrong. 
this happens to me periodically, and I have different ways of dealing with it. And hopefully it doesn't happen to you on the day that you're giving a talk. But um, there's a there's a, a person who I really admire for his creativity and his roving philosophy. His name is Timothy Speed Levitch, and he lives in New York City. And he's a double-decker tour bus guide who gives eloquent, poetic, philosophic <laughs> speedosity, yes. And his recent book, in his recent book, uh, Speedosity, he had the phrase, suffering is an addiction to self-doubt, maybe. <laughs> so I think... How can we have confidence in what we think we know, in our particular version of reality, in our particular, particular take on the world? And what is real and what is false, and does it really matter if there's a difference? There's been a lot of talk here about consciousness and mind and what's what and how do we parse out one from the other. And for myself, I try to bracket uh, the two different concepts, as in consciousness is a combination of thoughts combined with perceptions. It's what you feel, what you see, combined with the thought of the moment. Mind is built on consciousness. It's, it's an accumulation of life experience over time. It's all those little fleeting moments that you remember and forget and then re-remember and tweak them along the way. You never remember them the way they were and it changes along the way. So consciousness for me is sort of a snapshot and a photo album of the mind. When I try to think about consciousness, I think, you know, sure, there's those detectable traits. There's the things that... Uh, cognitive neuroscientists have been sort of tracking in increasingly in the last uh, 10, 20 years. They've been looking more and more about uh, not just the conscious states, the difference between being awake, asleep, attentive, dulled, um, looking at those things, looking at you know your tactile sensations, moving more and more towards how do our memories function? Where does memory come in? What about experience, belief? And that, I think, is where you touch on mind, and it becomes much more interesting and much more complex. The idea of an objective reality was foisted on us in the 18th century. There were two camps. Uh, there were the rationalists, who said that reality is based on, it was sort of a growing out of Descartes and the, the idea that we could know things through our intellect and explain them in that way. And then there were the empiricists who were focused on the senses and thought that everything was sort of tactilely uh, revealable, that you could know things because you experienced the world. And... The idea of objective reality has pretty much been debunked today. Um, people have been squabbling about it for a while, but Kant made a valiant effort to try and reconcile the two, but he fudged it because he said that we all share the same, 
basic take the same rational categories together, that there was a uniformity at base in our minds, and that with that, we could then go out and experience the world and somehow um, come to a common ground. But we know from our own individual experience that this isn't the case. Individuality is dizzying. It's beautiful. It's the complexity of the universe. It's what makes living fun. <laughs> but in another sense, we're all sort of caught in what uh, Scott Bukatman the, calls the terminal identity. And by terminal identity, he sort of means that, you know, at this stage in human evolution, we see things through screens. Our bodies are a screen. Our ideas, our, our experience are another type of screen. And so what we know is always necessarily subjective. When I think about getting a handle on consciousness, I, I often think of mirrors and metaphors with mirrors and, and particularly houses of mirrors. And Eric Davis, who will be speaking, I guess, on the next panel, he once had a thought that he said when he was a child, he would stand between two opposing mirrors and try to turn his head to get around it and said, if I just didn't have a head, I could see into infinity. I think he's still trying. <laughs> Um, but self-awareness is like this. And so the question is, how do you get around your own head? Is it possible? Is it possible to think of a way to do so? Take these two upside-down heads. All right, I'm not going to say any more. Strange. It's another one of those brain teasers. But unlike the ones yesterday that Susan was sharing, it's not inattentiveness to the two heads. It's an attentive blindness. It's a suturing of reality that our eyes fill in the difference. But the issue in what I've just shown you is orientation. When you're oriented with the faces upside down, and I intentionally did not say these two similar faces because I didn't want to lead you <laughs> linguistically into the, uh, the illusion. But I just think it's interesting that a simple inversion, this is called the Thatcher effect, and the first order relations between the eyes, the nose, the mouth change dramatically according to what position your head is in. Right before this talk, I got inverted, and if you haven't been inverted, I highly recommend it. It's basically being laid on your back and someone supports you like this, and you're suspended in air. It's a great experience for clearing your mind and also giving you a different way of thinking about the world. So the purpose of this talk that I want to uh, give today is, is to think about mind fiction, and specifically cyberpunk literature, I think, is mind fiction. There's, there's a lot of different things about it, and I'll describe it in a minute, but... Um, but for me, it's really about getting into your, your head and thinking about the space in there and how to better navigate it. So mind fictions, both in the sense of, of a literature and also the head trips that we play on ourselves. Now, I want to talk a little bit about models and particularly reality models. 
But models are funny things. <laughs> um, a couple weeks ago, my son, who's two and a half, was invited to participate in a, a study on cognitive mapping or the way that toddlers perceive spatial relations. And, and the, the exercises that they, the researchers had him do were uh, related to taking a map and a model. And the map had representations of, you know, chairs, sofas, things like that. And the model was color-coded the same, and it was 3D replicas. And each time that the researcher would have my son find a little object hidden in the model and then show, ask him to show her on the map where it was, and he would find it sometimes, sometimes he wouldn't. But, but the, the refrain was, you see, Finn, the map and the model are the same. That's how you knew the map and the model are the same. And I shuddered at each re repetition of that because I just felt like the map is not the model and the, the map is a representation of a fictional model that is representing a larger fictional world. So it really caused me great distress and I had to do a lot of de-indoctrination once he got home. But. So maps, and, maps are useful and so are models, but, but we should not mistake them for what they're representing. And a lot of people like to make models, personally and professionally. Artificial intelligence, uh, people working in artificial intelligence are working on a lot of models. Cognitive scientists, anthropologists, linguists, philosophers. There's all sorts of models of reality. Spiritual models. Spiritual models uh, that, that may say that this, the idea of a self is illusory. There's a Buddhist doctrine of anatta, which says that the self is an illusion. Uh, the Hindu one, the world is an illusion. The Christians follow the same more or less path by bracketing the world with, with heaven and hell. And these are useful models in certain ways, but I would say that we need to remember that they're just representations. Scientific models try and reduce us to a firing of synapses and neurons in, in the brain or, or other models of consciousness that, that are reductionist or mechanistic. And the mind may be an evolved machinery, but there's always a lingering residue that we live with. And we live subjectivity. We live perception. We live in the perceptual world. So I, in my work, I'm constantly looking for models that will that will uh, bridge, bridge those two opposing, uh, opposing senses of the world. And the exclusionary nature of models, the way that when one adheres to a strong belief, whatever it may be, even believing that psychoactive drugs are the next salvation. There was an excellent article in Trip Magazine by uh, James Kent in the last issue um, challenging us to think about psychedelics in, in our, own, uh, our own allegiance to them. And models of false reality are something that it's, it's a long-standing dilemma. It's a philosophical conundrum that comes up again and again. It's the, the problem in Plato's cave when the, the figures are chained. There's 
this is a scene in the Republic, and the, and the figures are chained into a cave, watching shadows on a wall. And when the, the individuals who are stuck in this world are released and go stumbling out into the sunlight, they suddenly see a different layer of the world and realize that what they thought they knew, they don't know. The Hindu wheel, get me off now. <laughs> this is the way that the Hindus, you know, that the idea that you're on a cyclical wheel and that you can escape is again another model for, for conceptualizing what we live on a day-to-day basis. In the 1980s and 1990s, a new emerging genre of fiction called cyberpunk came on the scene. And and cyberpunk fiction is, some people say, very dystopic. It's very grim and dismal because you have a lot of uh, sort of corporate waste. It's the detritus of an overwrought uh, capitalist society that's, that's just sort of out there. And then you have cyberspace. And in cyberspace, characters jack in with, with neural implants and electrodes attached to their brain. And, and you know, it's sort of a console cowboy uh, free-ranging world. And there's other things about it. But, but the, basically, cyberpunk, I think, is about altered states of body and altered states of mind because you constantly have body modifications, prostheses that are being added, um, enhancement through drugs or cognoceuticals, and, and sort of a mind augmentation that's going on as well. But the, the most prevalent characteristic is sort of a living in these embedded realities, these fictional worlds, it's about exploring the mind space between that, that makes use of technolo- technology, brain sockets, neural implants, nanobots, the whole gamut. But there's three important considerations that I'd like you to uh, think about. Um, you know, and it, basically, cyberpunk coincides with the decade of just say no politics. Uh, that was the mantra, and I, I think that it infused the, the authors who were working in this area with, with sort of that as the backdrop to what they were thinking about in terms of new technologies, because the other prominent feature is, of course, uh, computers. And, and com- the home computer was just being developed. It was sort of getting integrated. And Timothy Leary called, uh, called the personal computer of the 80s, you know, the LSD of the 80s. So, so that's sort of where the connection goes. It's sort of an altered uh, space. And the third thing is that these computer-generated realities were a new place to go mentally. It was a, a fictionalizing of, of what you could do with, with a computer space. And so it wasn't really... Um, I guess cyberspace didn't exist yet. The term was invented in 1984 by William Gibson, which I'm sure all of you have heard. Um, But what I find intriguing about it is that it was a fiction in itself. So it was the fiction before the the virtual reality or the Internet, as we call it today, you know, so that virtual space. This is a... (laughs) This is a very cyberpunk idea. Um... It's a particular thought experiment that philosophers use to consider consciousness and perception. How do we know that we're not all brains in vats, 
being stimulated, our brains are being stimulated so that we think we are in bodies and we think we're living in this world. If anyone has seen The Matrix, which I'm sure many of you have, um, it's, it's the basic premise of, of the Matrix 1 and, well, I won't give away Matrix 2. So. <laughs> um, but this is a slide from David Chalmers. He's a philosopher who, who works at the University of Arizona, and he's also the director of the Center for Consciousness Studies there. And so he lives in Tucson, and this is his way of... Uh, putting that idea forward. And, and so, you know, the question is, are we being deceived? And, and in the brain and the vat scenario, most uh, traditionally throughout, throughout 20th century science fiction, which again, the idea of mind and, you know, control via technology is something that is sort of a, a, a predominant theme. But cyberpunk took it one step further in that, they self-select to be brains in vats. They, they want to go to that altered space. It's not some malevolent scientist turning knobs and plugging things in. It's, it's uh, you know, they're, they're self-experimenters. And I think they have interesting models in, in this uh, way for thinking about, you know, a, a self-selecting enthusiasm for altered states of consciousness. Uh, a few examples of that might be Neuromancer, which, how many people have read Neuromancer? Excellent. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> a half-informed crowd. <laughs> okay, so, what's that? Yes, yes, Philip K. Dick was, you know, pretty much the demigod of cyberpunk before cyberpunk existed. And, and actually, Philip K. Dick has a, an interesting story called Time Out of Joint, that, uh, in which there's a character who's living in a 1950s-style uh, suburban reality, and he starts having this nagging sensation that what he's living isn't real. And increasingly, he, he gets frustrated, and then he starts having deja vu-like sensations, and, and that's when he sort of moves out of this false reality. But in cyberpunk, they go there, they force themselves to stay there even. In Greg Egan's Permutation City, which technically isn't cyberpunk, but it's a good book, and it's on theme, but um, in this book, the character... <laughs> sends himself into a simulated reality, and then deliberately, before he does that, cuts off all the escape accesses that that character could employ to get back out. So he's like basically cutting himself off in that world and saying, you're going to stay there and figure out what's going on. So so I want to introduce three models. I know there's four images, but... I want to introduce three models based on current and evolving computer interfaces and make analogies between these and reality and consciousness. This model is supposed to represent, the C is supposed to represent computers, and the R is reality in a physical sense, um, the physical world. But what I'd like to do is tweak it a little and, and have the C be consciousness and the R be reality, not only in the sense of the physical world, but also more like Robert Anton Wilson speaks of the real universe, which he says is a, a hallucin, 
hallucination learned by others, but which becomes self-induced. So, so in the first model, you have the graphic user interface. And um, the second model is virtual reality proper. And you can see where the Xs block off the outside world. The ubiquitous computers, I'm going to avoid because that would involve consciousness, 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 consciousness. And it's pretty much what I've got going here. All of your minds are operating. So I'm going to let you fill in the last model and tell me if it works at the end. But okay. So these are slides. This, these slides are taken from a book called Brave New Unwired World, which is a book by Alex Lightman about uh, wearable computers and sort of shifting towards uh, that phase of, of culture. But he got the image from Mark Billinghurst, who's a researcher at the Human Interface Lab at the University of Washington. And as I said, the C is intended to, to be computers, but, but if you take C as consciousness, what you get in this model is sort of a dividing line, a gap between consciousness interacting with itself and reality that's still going on, but you're not really paying attention to it. Or you're, it's sort of like sitting at a computer screen and you're involved typing or doing something and you stop to sip a cup of coffee. You're in both worlds, but they're sort of distinct. Okay. Virtual reality. The problem child of Jaron Lanier. Um, <laughs> this is, uh, this is a, as I said, the, the place where where you try to create an entirely immersive environment where consciousness is interacting with itself. And there's no, the, the outside world, the factual, consensual reality doesn't matter. This might be uh, John Lilly, if, how many people are familiar with John? Okay, yes. The isolation tank. <laughs> um, this might be what happens in the isolation tank or, or, using a ayahuasca in a, in a heavy and, and all-encompassing way. It's Huxley's mind at large. And so the goal here is total perceptual immersion. And in cyberpunk, as I said, this is something that, that they really go for. They're aiming at this. Pat Cadigan, this is not Pat Cadigan. <laughs> Pat Cadigan is one of my favorite cyberpunk authors, and, and she, she once said that the only virtual reality worth exploring is the space between your ears. And she's written a book, uh, she's written several books, and I, if somebody else has found another female cyberpunk author, please let me know, because she's the only one to date that I know of who's written major books, but... But in a book that she wrote called Mind Players, uh, she, she sets at the opening of the novel a character who's never, 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 ever used virtual reality technology before. She's never been hooked up. And this character uh, is sort of seduced into, into trying what's called in the book a madcap. And so she's going to do some mind play. And the way the, the technology works is first by placing a, a headgear on her head 
and then a chemical bath is infused into her brain to relax it and get it in the right state. And then wire tentacles wrap around and pop out her eyeballs and then reach around and connect directly to the optic nerve so that you have a direct two-brain connection. And again, this was a book that was written in, I think it's 87 possibly a little later, but but it's imagining like what would it be like to have technology that can connect directly to your brain and affect it. And the reason I mentioned the decade of the drug war is because there's a lot of overlays between between altering your mind through drugs and altering your mind through mind technologies, hard technologies. So when Ali tries this experience, this this mind play, it has the experience, she has the experience of of feeling a change in her brain chemistry that felt as natural as changing her mind. So it, it sort of crosses over between, you know, what is chemically induced and what is experientially real or palpable to someone. So after she tries this madcap, she gets dropped off anonymously at a mental dry cleaner the equivalent of a brainwashing uh, place. And, and then after that, she's driven to the brain police because in this novel, use of mind-altering electronic technologies is illegal. She's charged with a mind crime <laughs> and threatened with real jail time. But... In the process of, of review, her, her reality affixer finds out that, hmm, she shows evidence of mind play extensively. And so, because it's her first offense, the judge doesn't throw the book at her. And because she's a good suburban housewife with, you know, no other previous crimes in this area, she's, which, Again, I'm, I'm being facetious because this does mimic the drug war in a real way. Um, and so she's, she's given the choice of rehabilitation. And she becomes a professional pathos finder. The choices were also reality affixer, neurosis peddler, <laughs> bell jarrer. Um, it's an interesting book. I highly recommend it. Um, and so... The remainder of the novel focuses on her self-realizations, her mental trips as she's doing mind-to-mind contact and mind-to-many contact. And along the way, she's looking for signs. She's looking for signs under rocks, behind closed doors. She's looking for anything that she calls alerted states of consequence, or alerted snakes of consequence. So the the book is about reading signposts in your mind, trying to see out of one's own mental habits the stasis that we get in, and understanding others' empathy through the exchange of eyeballs. You pop yours out, I'll pop mine out, and we'll exchange them, and we'll get each other's perspective really clear. Um, So alerted snakes of consequence, you know, (laughs) I just like this image. (laughs) 
signs are always supposed to mean something. That's why they're called signs. But So make your own sign out of this, I'm not sure. Um, but the idea of signing isn't something new. In the, in the 17th century, there was uh, a guy named Jacob Boehm. I think I have a slide of him up here. Let's see. Yeah, Jacob Bohm, Boom. He was a German shoemaker, but he's also credited sometimes as being the father of modern uh, theosophy. And he picked up on an ancient idea called the doctrine of signatures. And the doctrine of signatures, which has been around for centuries, and herbalists have been using it for uh, for quite some time, is the idea that all of God's creation is marked with a sign that indicates what it's useful for. Uh, Kidneys, kidney beans for kidneys, tomatoes or or red flowers would be good for the blood. Um, Nature becomes the ultimate book. And so the basic tenet of, of Bohm's theory was that by observation, you can determine the purpose of something from the characteristics, from the color, the place where you find a root was supposed to be indicative. It's, it's sort of uh, meta-semiotics. I, I really like this idea of, you know, sort of where did signing come from and, and the fact that nature itself could be something like that. And walnuts for the brain is another interesting one, uh, you know, because it mimics the hemispheres of the brain it was supposed to be beneficial for, for that organ. And this is still believed um, to some extent. I found an article suggesting that walnuts were, were helpful in preventing bipolar disorder. Uh, also another one about the fatty acids, the omega-3 and omega-5 fatty acids that walnuts contain and can cross the blood-brain barrier are supposed to be uh, components pr- that help in the production of certain neurotransmitters. So there may be some truth to this. Welcome to walnut states. <laughs> I have a story about walnuts. I like pecans. So I, I went to my local co-op one day, and I... I wanted to buy pecans, so I went to the bulk bins, selected out a half a pound of pecans, and then paid for them, left. And on the way home, I, I, was, I started munching them, and I stopped, and I was like, these aren't pecans. And I looked down, and sure enough, the pecan pieces that I had in the bag were walnuts. And I said, well, shit, I paid for pecans. Those are more expensive. So I was miffed, and, as I, and I thought, okay, what the hell? This, this had happened to me once before in a different store in a different town. So then I started speculating, maybe there's some sort of conspiracy among the distributors. So I decided to do my good civic duty and call the co-op and let them know that they, that they were being duped, or at least to to get the employee who was dumping the walnuts into the pecan bin to, you know, get that straightened out. So the co-op manager thanked me, and he said he'd get back to me. So he did. He called me back about a half an hour later, and he said, he said, ma'am, 
and there was deep concern in his voice, and he said, I just wanted to let you know that I and two of my employees have just sampled the nuts in the pecan bin, and the nuts in the bulk pecan bin were pecans. Now, I know what pecans taste like. (laughs) And despite what I knew, what I thought I knew, and despite at least three different senses, I don't know if this is synesthesia, but I don't think so, I was living in a fabricated reality of my own making. And so this walnut conspiracy, it showed me that I was caught in some kind of loop. I was caught in a pattern in my mind. There was a false alignment. So I started thinking, how did this happen? This is the graphic user interface of walnut land. There was a disconnect between my views and obviously the experience that I was undergoing. And and I started thinking... (laughs) How is wanting to protect people from eating eating walnuts that they think are pecans any different from the mission of Christianity, from pandering democracy across the globe as some sort of benevolence? And it really got me going. So (laughs) as Robert Anton Wilson has said, what the seer sees, the prover proves. What's that? Is it the? Could be. I could be wrong. <laughs> the thinker thinks. He probably said them both. <laughs> and so, you know, basically, just that that what you're determined to know and what you're determined to believe can become its own self-fulfilling reality, even overtaking multiple senses. Richard Lauenberg, a friend of mine and an artist in Northern California, had a show recently at which he, he had in dripping red latex the following poem that said, A deception is being perpetrated. It is not an overt deception. It is not a covert deception. It is the evolution of misconception. Now, we can't protect ourselves from misconceptions, but I think we can keep from evolving them, maybe by taking the idea of the doctrine of signs and saying instead of finding the purpose, find the consequence. Augmented reality is a new form of computer interface that's that's being worked on right now. And an augmented reality is is the graphic user interface that, that you saw like this. And what this says to me, if you still take the C as consciousness, is that you have a permeable boundary. Augmented reality supplements the physical world, the external world with additional information. Now, there's a number of different models that are, that are being used to do this. But basically, in the augmented reality model, you have virtual objects that are added into the person's view as navigational aids, as a way to, to better see. 
but you'll notice there's no R in this model. And I actually, I emailed Alex Lightman because I was like, where's the R? <laughs> what happened to reality? And so I'm still puzzling it out, but I think that it's simply that you are in reality, whatever that reality is, and I still am not making claims as to what that is, but, but you're in it. So it's all around you rather than cut off from reality. Aug augmented reality for me would be like opening the doors of perception, walking through them <laughs> in a house of mirrors, not getting lost, not losing my nerve, and also not losing my keys. I think there needs to be sort of a combo world, and, and that's why I like the idea of augmented reality. But, but that said, this is where it's at right now. Um, <laughs> this reminds me of, there's, uh, I think, I'm not sure what, what museum, in, oh, maybe it's the Space Museum in Washington, D.C., where they have examples of, of very early uh, submarine headgear or the, the suits that they wore, the first uh, trip to the moon. And I think that's where augmented reality is at right now in terms of the technology. I'm sure there's people in this room who could inform me um, of, of where it's really at since I don't have a computer science background. But, but this is actually a, a helmet that's, that's being used on Columbia University to give virtual tours of the campus. And so it's an example of an educational model where uh, you supplement the viewer's field with information like, that's the library, that's the psych building, things like that. So sort of practical information that, that comes on the scene. But in typical cyberpunk fashion for this sort of technology, the military is working on it for their program called Cog. <laughs> this is one of the guys who's working on it. And, and the military model <laughs> being developed right now by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, uh, has, has certain objectives that they're aiming at. And their objectives are phase one, to measure the cognitive state. Phase two, manipulate the cognitive state. Phase three, automate the cognitive state. And phase four, to demonstrate that this works in military operations. I guess this is because there aren't very many smart people going into the military. They need to aug cognition, so... But, you know, and, and the manipulative... Uh, research that they're doing is, is trying, to, trying to get a one, in less than one minute, a response so that there's no performance degradation. degradation. And, and so this is a military application. There's also, there's also commercial aspects to augmented reality. This is a, not a very good slide, but it was one of the few that I could find. So, And in this picture you have you have a guy down here who's looking at something over there, and then you have sort of a, a monster up top, and that's supposed to be showing movie times. And up here in the far corner on the top, you have a bus stop showing the next local bus coming at, I don't know, 523. And first I was thinking, 
the first people who have this technology are not the people who take the bus, probably. So that I thought was a little specious. But nonetheless, uh, you know, these are ways for for real-world applications of so-called augmented reality. How can we think differently when we're asked to do so by a corporation? Uh, so <laughs> I guess I'm just showing you these, these different types of augmented reality so that we can better think about what our own strategy to augmented reality might be. If we put filters on cameras to enhance the picture, what kind of filters can we put on our minds to enhance our day-to-day -day walk? Cognitive liberty is a concept that basically updates freedom of thought for the 21st century in an age when things like manipulating mind states from, you know, DARPA become more and more. They're not there yet. You saw the bulky headgear. They're not there yet, but there's an evolution. There's something moving in that way. And if cognitive liberty is the right of each individual to think independently or autonomously and to engage in the full spectrum of thought and to, to have access to multiple modes of consciousness, if that's what cognitive liberty is, it's, it's something that is a political goal in the sense that there are things that are outlawed, outlawed currently, which drugs specifically, which which are tools to augmented cognition, but also on a, on a more personal level. So the, the political aim of cognitive liberty and, and the work that Richard and I spearhead at, the, at our center, um, you know, is, is protective and preemptive. We're, we're trying to, to overcome constraints that, that keep one from having access to these, these tools. But on a personal level, on a metaphysical in the sense of philosophical level, I think it's also a, a duty call to deal with our own messy interior, our own mind fictions, the way that we, we put tapes into the world and then play them out. And so the cyberpunk crossover with cognitive liberty may be the, the point where one says they can... Uh, the cyberpunk people say, I know I'm being manipulated from all sides. I know my free will may not be, may be a fiction in and of itself. But if everybody else is manipulating me, why can't I manipulate myself? So it's sort of a, a headlong plunge into altered states of consciousness that can enhance your day-to-day -day walk. Cyberpunk, uh, a cyberpunk operation of self-vivisection, distrust disorient and de-story, not destroy, de-story, find another story, pick another, uh, pick another way to, to see yourself. There's no monopoly on method for these things. And as I said, I've presented models for, for how this, this might, how we might think about augmented reality. And I don't know, for each person it's different. Some people are really good at yoga. I'm not. I have too much brain activity going on and can't clear my head. And if someone's got some way for me to overcome that, I'd be interested in hearing about it. But I also have a two-year-old, which makes yoga seem like a true luxury. But 
Um, so there's no, there's no monopoly on methods for, for getting distance on ourselves. And in a sense, we're all here at mind states today because we already know the value of alerted states of consciousness. The methods that you use to dismantle yourself, to find that humble spot, and then grow from there and become a better person, a more effective person in this world that's so messed up. So I guess, you know, in closing, I'd just like to admonish you to, to think about cognitive liberty as, as not only a political aim, but a personal practice. And that's all I have to say today. But, um, well, actually, I read something in the Arrowhead newsletter where um, Terence McKenna, he had words of wisdom, as he often does, and basically was saying that, this was the quote, it said, pay attention and remember to breathe. And that's what I'd like to do. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Ryan will answer a few questions. Hi, I was wondering how you felt about irony and the obvious commercialization of cyberpunk evolutionary transhumanist concepts where everywhere we look we see a billboard that says take it to the next level and I was wondering if a good answer would be to create audio art sculptures with all these weird computer parts and have social political commentary because I think cyberpunk like it's kind of dead in a way because I mean the matrix like we, we came up with, the, with this stuff on the internet like 30 years ago and now the masses are finally catching on so um, what, what's the solution is everything ironic is everything some big art prank now <laughs> I'd say the cultural machinery never rests and we need to always think of of the next wave, and that's not to say the next wave in fashion, because cyberpunk certainly became its own uniform. And I'll answer with a quote that uh, I, I read an interview with William Gibson recently, where he was talking about cyberpunk, you know, as being dead in the water. In in terms of a, a, a cultural movement, I think it is. In terms of what the fiction's doing, I think there's still a lot there. But he said it's the equivalent of, uh, you know, cyberpunk was about being a criminally intentioned bohemian with a computer. And that today that would be the equivalent of saying I'm a criminally intentioned bohemian with a washing machine. (laughs) (laughs) I do uh, quantitative electroencephalography, uh, brain mapping, and... uh, also neurofeedback. And so you're talking about these mind machines and how, you know, we can merge, um, you know, the mind and external reality and computers and neurofeedback is certainly a way to do that. But I also wonder about using different chemical substances or natural substances that may change your awareness and wake up um, parts of the brain that could enhance neurofeedback. So there's like, or other brain-mind technologies. Okay, so it are, is your question then about drugs that you would take in as a one-time thing and then that sh- helps you to cope? Well, 
it's it's another way to get more interfaced with the right. machine. I right. would, I'm presuming people have had you know some experience with computers, and they take some substance, and they they seem more interacted with the computer, whether they are or not, I don't know. But with the neurofeedback, all of a sudden, if you're getting better scores, you can tell, hey, I really am doing better at this game while I'm taking this substance. Right, yeah, I think that, um, you know, that the virtual reality model, where if you're talking about a drug that you take and you have a self-enclosed experience, I think that those do give you tools for going back out into the world. But what I'm hoping for is the next phase in cognoceuticals, which will allow you to be operating in the world, you know, or microdoses of LSD that, that allow you to sort of see things differently. But again, that's, it's a very individualized, tailored need. And the way I understand science to be going is that we will be able to individually tailor drugs. It's, there's, what's it called? The, I forget the name of it, but uh, the drug delivery mechanisms for uh, tailored to your genotype. So we're moving actually from what Annalee Newitz, who's a, a great technology writer, she's, a, she's studying the lexicon of, of technology at MIT right now, and she, she said that you know, we're moving from cyberpunk to biopunk, which I think is an apt characterization of it. Well, the issue I see is any, any it, just briefly, any chemical that you know, might actually enhance your brain, they quickly make illegal before they can ever do any scientific studies on it, therefore really curtailing any science and scientific studies with these substances. Well, on the political side of those uh, elements, we're definitely working on that. Richard, my partner, does the legal aspects of the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics, and so we're trying to curtail that as well. Uh, well, you that was pretty much my question as well. Um, so instead, since I haven't thought up a second one, um, I was wondering about the latest state of affairs with Dr. Sell. Um, that's a little, I suppose that might be a little off topic, but. Uh. Um, yeah, I think Richard would actually be much better versed in, in the Dr. Sell. In the Dr. Sell case. I'll, I'll just explain to people who don't know what the Dr. Sell case is. Um, our, our center currently has a, a case before the Supreme Court uh, about the issue of a, a, a doctor named Dr. Sell. He's a St. Louis dentist, and he's being held on embezzlement charges, I believe, and uh, the government has been wanting to forcibly drug him with antipsychotic medication so that he can stand trial. Now, this is different from a post-conviction administration of psychotropic drugs. This is a pretrial detainee. So there's, he's saying, no, I don't want the drugs. And the government's saying, take the drugs so we can have a trial, get this over with, and get you out of the system. So, so that's the issue in sort of a, a nutshell. <laughs> um, but uh, if you have questions about that case specifically, I, I suggest you address them to Richard who will be up next on the control panel. Thank you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And in case you're wondering how the Dr. Sell case turned out, believe it or not, the Supreme Court reversed the order to forcibly inject him with antipsychotic chemicals, and uh, at least I think uh, I read that decision right. It said in part, 
For these reasons, we believe that the present orders authorizing forced administration of antipsychotic drugs cannot stand. The government may pursue its request for forced medication on the grounds discussed in this opinion, including grounds related to the danger Cell poses to himself and others. So they uh, they left the door open, but at least uh, made them jump through a few more hoops before they medicate him. And I might add that uh, Justices Scalia, O'Connor, and Thomas uh, dissented from that opinion. Maybe uh, one of our fellow Slaughters will uh, follow up on this someday and post an update uh, on our blog over at the forum at uh, thegrowreport.com. So, how's uh, reality in your neck of the woods these days? Is it real? <laughs> Who's to say what's going on under the board, huh? Sometimes I think that uh, I might even be a figment of my own imagination. <laughs> One of the little sayings I once had on my desk said, Just your imagination? Of course it's your imagination. The world is your imagination. Have you forgotten? I found that uh, written on my notepad about ten years ago uh, after an all-night solo mushroom session, and uh, I don't mean to sound mysterious about it. It was in my handwriting. Uh, nobody else snuck in and wrote it. I just don't remember doing it, uh, but you know how that goes. As they say, uh, reality is in the eye of the beholder. And uh, didn't you like that phrase Rye used when she uh, spoke about living in a fictional world as being embedded realities? Embedded realities, a reality within another reality. And that got me to uh, thinking about some of the uh, immersive online games and uh, even uh, the more mundane social networking sites like MySpace and Facebook. In a way, uh, those are all examples of embedded realities. I know that uh, on a few occasions each month when I log into Tribe.net, my mind shifts gears ever so slightly and I can almost feel the playa dust in my lungs because uh, on Tribe.net is where uh, most of my Burning Man contacts take place. And before uh, the psychedelic salon got kicked off uh, of MySpace, uh, I always felt a little different rhythm in my brain when I surfed my friend's pages over there. And now, uh, just a few days ago, uh, my youngest son shamed me into uh, setting up a Facebook page. And now I find myself embedded in yet another reality within my already overflowing basket of alternate realities. And uh, one of the things that uh, kind of freaked me out when I first logged on was that uh, a few minutes after I got there, uh, I got an invitation to join a group called Fans of Lorenzo Haggerty or something like that. You know, I'd, I'd forgotten that a little while ago, my friend Tom Barbalay, uh, who's the host of both the Biota and the Naked Ape podcasts, had uh, set up that little page as a way for people to contact or uh, find the others, so to speak. And at first, I was a little freaked out by it and suggested to Tom that it uh, really wasn't necessary now that I had my own page. But uh, here's what he said when he came back to me. The purpose of this group is to find like-minded folk in shared locations. If you want your personal Facebook page to replace this group, it would mean that all the fans of your work would have to befriend you and potentially your kids and others who you are Facebook friends with who aren't connected with your podcast could be uh, contacted about your podcast by folks living close to them or uh, traveling through their town, etc. The model for this group was the biota.org community on Facebook, which is used to link like-minded folks close to each other or folks traveling through these areas. Of course, uh, I ended up befriending all who would befriend me back through the biota.org community page, but it was all about putting faces to what biota.org was doing. 
a different purpose than our personal page itself. So uh, I guess we should just be discreet, but uh, maybe this will work out over the long haul to uh, be another way to find the others. However, I just want you to be aware of the fact that on my personal page, uh, some of the first friends who found me were old classmates and former business associates. And uh, how should I say this uh, kindly? Uh, let me just say that you shouldn't assume that just because you're connected to one of my personal Facebook friends that you should automatically assume that you've found one of the others. As you know, I was uh, still in the psychedelic closet during my business career. And uh, that's probably a, a good place to be if you're in the business world, at least for the time being. So, uh, hey, keep your heads down and don't get separated from the herd. Now, where did that come from, huh? Hmm. Maybe I better get back to business here and uh, read something uh, like this announcement that uh, just came in from Nicholas Nager. Uh, here's part of what he had to say. I would like to bring to your attention a conference that my colleagues and I are hosting at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana campus. Self and Substance, Drugs, Culture, and Society will be a multidisciplinary, mainly academic gathering to examine and discuss the roles that chemicals have played in various aspects of the human experience. It is scheduled for April 10th and 11th, 2009, and I'm attaching the Call for Papers document. Already on board to speak is Curtis Mares, author of Drug Wars, The Political Economy of Narcotics, and uh, several others from a wide variety of backgrounds. I was hoping that you could forward this call for papers onto various connections that you may have through the Psychedelic Salon. I've already contacted Susan Blackmore, but uh, there are many others that have contributed to your podcast for whom I cannot find the contact information. Any way in which you could spread the word would be greatly appreciated. And I'll post uh, the call for papers document on our notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, along with the program notes for this podcast. Uh, but here is part of what that says. Drugs and drug users have generated a complicated and enduring dialogue with political and social developments, often spurring robust debate and influencing events throughout history. This conference will be a two-day interdisciplinary gathering of scholars studying a wide range of licit and illicit drug issues. The conference is particularly interested in how drug and addiction-related subject matter has been historically constructed through literary, institutional, and popular discourse. The program committee invites critical and theoretical work from scholars in the humanities and social sciences, as well as in other fields, including pharmacy, biology, and chemistry. The conference seeks papers on an array of topics, including, but not limited to, the following. Drugs, health, and community. The science of addiction, including drug treatment. Drug laws and drug users' rights. Crime, punishment, and imprisonment. Drug subcultures. Drug consumption and identity. The construction of the addict through racism and classism. Women and substance abuse. Drug trafficking and globalization the rhetoric of drug consumption and or prevention, and the confluence of the war on terrorism and the war on drugs. So if uh, you want to get some notice in academia for your ideas about one of these topics, the uh, instructions for submitting an abstract for consideration will also be posted on our blog. And since we're talking about paper submissions, I also want to mention the Psychedelic Salon Quarterly. As you know, we announced this new online journal a couple of podcasts back, and uh, here's what's taken place since then. And, and this comes in an email from Dean Haddock, who is uh, organizing this effort for us. 
He says, Hi, Lorenzo. We have four submissions so far, all of which are publishable. I haven't gotten anyone to commit to any reviews yet, so it may be a good time to call for a few trusty volunteers who feel qualified to read and provide anonymous feedback on some papers. So if that uh, sounds like something you'd be interested in doing, uh, just go to psq.criticalmath.com and go to the comments section and let Dean know that you would like to be a peer reviewer for this new project. Now, uh, just a couple more things and I'll be out of here. The first is uh, the recent Mind States announcements that uh, John Hanna recently sent out. And if you're not on John's uh, mailing list, you might want to get on it just to keep up with some of the events that uh, sometimes slip under the radar. In his latest mailing, uh, John points out some very cool holiday gifts for those who haven't lost all their money in the stock market and uh, still plan on giving gifts this year. In fact, there's uh, one gift that some psychonauts uh, might want to get for themselves, and that is a complete set of the Entheogen Review on disc. As you know, the uh, next issue of the Entheogen Review is unfortunately going to be its last. And uh, since I only have about half of the hard copy issues myself, I'm going to get a copy of this disc just to uh, be sure that I don't lose access to all of that valuable material, uh, most of which is not online. And also in this mailing, uh, John lists uh, five upcoming conferences and workshops that uh, should be of interest to the psychedelic community. Plus he has a little teaser that says... Coming in early 2009, a one-day conference in the Bay Area all about absinthe. Join our email list for more information. So, uh, if you're interested in absinthe and you live near the Bay Area and you want to go to this conference, well, probably the only way you're going to find out about it is through John's list, which you can sign up for at www.mindstates.org. And by the way, uh, in addition to thanking Rye for giving today's talk, I want to thank John for producing the Mind States Conference at which it was given. And uh, I also want to thank JT, who made the recording and then very graciously gave me permission to play it for you today. So uh, get connected with John at his mindstates.org site, and uh, you'll be able to get this kind of news when it first comes out, rather than uh, have to wait for me to mention it. Now, I've got one last thing I want to do here today, and uh, it's most likely is uh, going to ruffle a few feathers with some of our fellow saloners and uh, maybe even here in my own household. And that's a good thing. You know, I, th- I think one of the most healthy signs about our community is that we don't all see eye to eye on everything. We have disagreements, but uh, fortunately, for the most part, they're quite civilized disagreements. You know, I'm constantly impressed with the uh, level of discussion that takes place on the forums over at thegrowreport.com. You know, while there are many heated exchanges, uh, for the most part, they take place at a very high level. They are very civilized discussions. And so uh, I figure we can handle a little more controversy here. Uh, This time it's uh, about whether we should only use our sacred medicines in somewhat serious and focused ways, or if it also is okay to use them in a recreational setting. Now, one of the problems I've uh, found here in the psychedelic salon is that we uh, seem to spend way too much time in our heads. And I'm the primary culprit here because uh, that's my nature. But to be honest, uh, I wouldn't be here doing these podcasts today if in the beginning I hadn't experienced a lot, and I mean a lot, of fun using these substances. Now, I'm not saying that long-term indiscriminate use of psychedelics in only a party setting is a good thing. And uh, frankly, there aren't many people who can uh, stay on that path for a long time. 
what it, uh, at least I see generally happening is that people who come to psychedelics only for the party eventually burn out or find something else that captures their attention. But there are uh, always the few, uh, the rare individuals who progress to more sophisticated uses of uh, these plant teachers, and they uh, end up being professional psychonauts who uh, seem to like uh, hanging around the psychedelic salon with me. Actually, uh, originally I came for the party, but uh, I stayed for the spiritual renewal that these medicines brought me. Today, I'd say that uh, probably 95% of my use of these substances is uh, in a very directed spiritual manner. But I still like to uh, take something and dance all night every once in a while. And by the way, uh, if you look far back into human history, you'll see this type of behavior, getting high on a mind-altering substance and then dancing all night, is uh, probably actually hardwired into us. You know, we humans have been dancing around the fire all night and altering our consciousness in the process uh, ever since we first began walking upright. It's a very natural emotion to want to experience pleasure and joy. So the other day, when I was listening to uh, the Smashcast 11.5 from Black Light in the Attic, a uh, great podcast, by the way, I really resonated with a, a little rant that Cody got going about uh, people who look down on anyone who uses psychedelic medicines in a way that doesn't seem serious enough. And uh, believe me, uh, that mindset uh, makes up a very significant portion of our community. And I do respect their beliefs, but uh, that doesn't mean that theirs is the only approach to using these substances. You know, just like uh, fundamentalist Christians don't have a lock on the only way to experience their belief system, Fundamentalist psychonauts uh, might not have the only answers about our belief systems. But I still can't uh, express myself as well as Cody did in his last smash cast. So what I'm going to do now is uh, play that segment from his program and uh, let you hear for yourself how uh, Cody and I feel about this topic. Here's Cody. And uh, to move on to um, what I wanted to talk about here... I've got kind of a beef. I've got a little bit of a beef here uh, with uh, some of the, the psychedelic community. And um, I'm going to lay it on you guys here pretty much point blank. I, uh, I, I, have, I, I take issue with this concept that these substances, uh, specifically speaking of, you know, psychedelics, you know, uh, acid or LSD and all these different things, you know, DMT, mushrooms, blah, 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 all that. I take issue with this concept that they should be used only in, um, like, a ritualistic uh, sort of way, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm taking big issue with that. I personally appreciate the idea that these substances are extremely powerful and extremely insightful when used in the right context. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I appreciate the idea that, yes, you know, when used in proper ways, in especially a ritualistic sort of setting, um, the insights and ideas and, you know, knowledge you can gain from an experience like that, um, how much that's really worth. I, I see that. I get that. Um, but at the same time, I've got a problem with um, this idea that, we can't or we shouldn't be um, taking them to have fun. I just I just have a big fucking problem with that. I don't agree with it at all. I just, I, I, and I gotta say it, I, like I think that, well, put it this way, I, I understand why some people 
especially the people that are into those kinds of settings for these substances, really um, stand behind the idea that they should be used in a sacred or ritualistic sort of setting. And um, I, I don't disagree. I think that that's definitely one way to use them. But I don't see any problem with responsible people being responsible and taking these things to have fun. I just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I want to know, can somebody out there tell me, since when are we not allowed to take these drugs or substances, sacraments, medicines, whatever, since when are we not allowed to take these things to have fun? When did that come about? What? Why? I, I, I just completely disagree. I, um, I, from personal experience, uh, have found quite a bit of value in taking these uh, substances in a not-so-ritualistic or sacramental manner, to take them flat out to have a good time. Is there something wrong with that? Can somebody please tell me why I shouldn't be allowed to do that? Now, I'm not saying go out into the streets drop a bunch of acid, run around and act crazy and disrupt people. And uh, don't get me wrong, I've, I've done shit like that, you know? I mean, but I want to know, since when is it not acceptable behavior to go to a show or to a festival and, you know, take some doses or eat a bag of mushrooms and, and watch a really amazing concert with a great light show and have, you know, just a, just a great time, you know? And, or, or to be somewhere safe with some of your buddies and then you take some of this stuff and to joke around and laugh a lot. I mean... I want to know when is when when did that become a problem? I want to know why people think or why some people think that it's not right. I just uh, I just completely disagree with you. I propose to the naysayers out there who say that taking these substances for any reason other than a ritualistic or sacramental one, I propose to you, to all of you, that some of the most powerful and enlightening and memorable moments of my life, of my entire life, have been on some of these substances in a completely non-sacramental or ritualistic manner. They were strictly me, you know, just in a buddy or two, uh, you know, somewhere laughing about something crazy that happened or whatever, or it was me and some friends or me by myself at some concert or show and witnessing some amazing, you know, lights and lasers and all this kind of stuff and being part of a large crowd of people that's really excited to see something and you kind of pick up on the vibe of everybody being around you and you feel like you're being part of one large experience that everybody around you is also experiencing. What the fuck is wrong with that? Somebody have an answer? Does anybody have an answer? That's what I want to know. I can understand people being reluctant to accept these substances to be used in that manner uh, due to the idea or to the fact that a lot of people are irresponsible with them and they can take them in a non-ritualistic setting and cause problems and, you know, create stories, create stories for, you know, the media to pick up and demonize us and things like that. But at the same time, I, I don't think that the solution is to make some sort of unsaid rule or create a concept that we shouldn't be taking them for any other reason other than, a, you know, a sacramental or ritualistic one. 
It's because that's just that's just bullshit. It's total bullshit. And you know, I'm I'm not one like I said to lay down my opinion as or, or say something like yeah this is right and this is wrong. But in this, I've been hearing you know comments and reading comments from some people that kind of allude to that, and it really bothers me. I think people need to you know loosen up a bit, man. You know. Forget about, you know, self-discovery for a second and, you know, mind expansion for a minute. Let's have a fucking good time, dude. I mean, you only live once. And if, you know, and if taking some of these things at a show or with some friends, just for the fuck of it, if, if, if that's a good time, I just, I just don't see what's wrong with it. And if you're not hurting anybody else... And you're not creating um, a situation where the media can sort of scapegoat you and, and broad brush, you know, the, the situation you're created or that you created over all of us as a whole in a dark way. I don't see anything wrong with it. And, you know, it's like, I don't know. I, I, and I'm not really sure why this is like something that's like that all of a sudden I felt the need to say but it's like really been bothering me i've just been hearing numerous comments from people trying to like dub these things as medicines only you know and stuff like that and yeah i get it yeah there's there's medicinal values in it but there's medicinal values in smoking pot too and i don't think any of you can tell me that you smoke pot for strictly medical reasons only yeah i mean yeah okay maybe there are some people out there that do and that never would have smoked it if it wasn't for the medical reason but let's be honest here how many of you you guys smoke pot only, I'm saying only, because you have a medical condition. Anybody? Anybody? I, I doubt it, you know? I mean, and, and, and if it's so, I'm talking, it's got to be very few, very, very small number of people. I guess, I guess all I'm saying is, is that in life, self-discovery, mind expansion, these kinds of things, yes, they're all very important. But, you know, it, it reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of that Stephen King movie or book or whatever, you know, uh, all work and no play makes Jack no boy, you know what I'm saying? And I think all work and no play in the psychedelic realm makes you dull too, you know, I just think people need to fucking let their hair down every once in a while, have a good time, and indulge, I mean, come on, like, let's have some fun, relax a little bit, people, I mean, come on, that's all I'm really saying, and, um, yeah, I don't know, maybe this will piss some, some people off, but, like I said, it's been burning in my mind recently, and I just had to let it loose, so, there it is, I put it out on the table. Thanks for that, Cody. Uh, I really can't improve on what you had to say. And by the way, uh, I applaud you for your courage in speaking out. I don't expect everyone to agree with us on this, uh, but I am confident that the psychedelic community is strong enough to hold a few widely diverse opinions and uh, still find a, enough love in our hearts to admit that there are a lot of different ways to experience what we think of as reality. After all, if we truly are one... Why not have a few of us check out the less serious sides of life? And if you've never dropped a little pill and danced all night, well, <laughs> you simply don't know what you're missing. But if I don't wrap this up and get out of here right now, I'm going to be missing our family's holiday dinner celebration. So uh, 
better wrap this up. Uh, but before I go, uh, I also should let you know that uh, there probably won't be a podcast uh, from the salon next week. Uh, you see, tomorrow morning, uh, Mateo and I are going to uh, slip out of the country and head back up to the mountains for a few new adventures. And we'll be gone for about a week. Uh, from past experience, I know that it usually takes me several days to recover uh, after uh, some intensive fun and games with Mateo and friends. But never fear, I'll be back before you know it. And now, as always, I'll close this podcast by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's uh, also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Oh.